Well, good afternoon. Uh, I'd like to encourage you, if you've not already done so, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. The sermon text for this evening is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. And uh, it's a a joy and a privilege to be with you tonight. Last week, uh, this sermon text in 1 Timothy 4 were instructions on how to lose your faith, how to uh, how to become an apostate, and the sermon text this week will be instructions on how to be a good and faithful servant of Jesus Christ. So, First Timothy, First Timothy, chapter four. I'll begin reading in verse six, all the way through verse ten. Hear God's word. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, excuse me, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and let's once again ask for his help. Father, we thank you for the great privilege to be here today. And uh, we're... uh, it's fortunate to have another opportunity to open your word, to meet together, and to sit under your authoritative voice. So we pray, Lord, help us. Open our eyes to see and our heart to believe wonderful things that you want to reveal about yourself tonight. We ask it all in Christ's mighty name. Amen. It was uh, junior year in high school. And it was the night before my very first uh, cross-country race. And so um, for uh, a little bit of a significance about that is I had joined the team just two days before this first race. And uh, uh, the the season was six to eight weeks already in. And uh, somehow uh, the the coach had, had asked me and talked to me about joining uh, the team, so I joined the team, and uh, each each team for the varsity is allotted seven runners for the race, and so I somehow slid in uh, to slot number seven, and uh, I'd, not, I'd only practiced with them twice. Uh, the, the distance at the time, I don't know if the same is true today, but the distance at the time was three miles, and uh, I was not much of an endurance runner. In fact, I, I can't recall ever having uh, run that distance aside from the two practices uh, beforehand. I was uh, more built for speed. Um, I, I know the you know, present body of work right here, you're, you're probably having a hard time believing that, but there was a few LBs uh, lighter then. And, uh, and, but I, I really, I could, I, could, I could run short distances. So the night before the race, uh, we're eating dinner and my dad asks, uh, he said, so what's your strategy for tomorrow? And I said, what do you mean strategy? He said, what's, what's your plan? And I said, I don't know. I said, I'm just, I guess just run the three miles. 
He said, no, you, you, need, to have a, you need to have a game plan. You need, a, you need to have a strategy. So who's, uh, who's predicted to win this race? And uh, I said, I, I don't know. He said, well, what you need to do before the race starts is find out who's favored to, to win, and you run with them. And I, my dad's a wise guy, but that's some of the dumbest advice that you could ever give to somebody before. So uh, me being as naive uh, as, as I was, I took his advice. So next day we're at the race, uh, line up, I'm, I'm up there up front. And so the particular course that we're running, there's two laps that you have. And so the, uh, the shotgun start or the gun start goes off. And I, I mean, I, I take off like I'm running 90 foot bases. I'm, I, I'm in a dead on sprint. And so about a tenth to a quarter of a mile into the race is an opening. So you, you kind of come around some trees. And, uh, and, and so it gives all of the spectators, all the parents, all the fans, it gives them an opportunity to see the race start and to see um, about a tenth of a mile to a quarter of a mile in. So uh, I'm cooking, man. And uh, I'm, I'm top 10. So I come around the first thing. I, I, see, uh, I see the faces there. They're, they're I, I mean, probably really astonished, surprised, wishing I would pace myself. So I'm, I'm top 10 coming around the first. Well, then it comes time to come around the second time. First 10, ten runners go by, there's no Nathan. Uh, top 25 comes by, there's no Nathan. 100 runners come by, there's no Nathan. Uh, I do finish the race. And uh, I, I, I uh, finished at an impressive 193rd place of 200 runners. <laughs> and, uh, and so obviously when, 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 you're, when you're thinking about it, it's, it's like, okay, you, you, I didn't know what I was doing. I started out in a sprint. I had no idea what was before me. And, uh, and so it matters, you know, it matters so little um, like how you start things in life but what really matters is do you finish faithfully and so as I shared earlier right before we read the text last week's sermon text it, it there were clear instructions on this is what it looks like to fall away from Christ and the instructions this week are very clear and sober warnings of what it looks like to be a good, faithful servant of Jesus. So how, how do I, how do I become, how am I a good servant of Christ? Well, the first thing that we want to look at is that we, a good servant of Christ warns and nourishes. We see this in verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So a good servant warns and he nourishes. But the words Paul uses here in pointing out these things. So what are, what are these things? Any time around our home that uh, one of us uh, uses a phrase like these things or this, you can expect somebody in the house is going to say, use your words. We don't know what you mean by this. We don't know what you mean by these things. So what does Paul mean by these things? Generally speaking, it is what Paul has said so far in the letter to Timothy, uh, 
among which are uh, the things he's been teaching on doctrine, the gospel, Paul's testimony, uh, fighting the good fight, keeping a clear conscience, warning against making shipwreck of your faith, instructions for deacons and elders, and warning against apostasy. So that's a, that's a 30,000 foot view for the instructions that Paul has given thus far. But more specifically, as we zero in a little bit more, these things refer to instructions on how to conduct yourselves in the church and how the gospel makes you aware and alert so that you are not deceived and led astray by false doctrine. Being a good servant means that you point out the matters of concern. You identify anything that is overtly dangerous and you warn of the subtle dangers that are in front of you. So it's not just you're pointing out the obvious things that, that every person should be concerned about. You're also pointing out the very subtle dangers, that, that the very matters that start to tempt a person to drift away from Christ. The language of the text, it stops short of giving this a full-out command, but this is what shepherds do. They point out these things. Shepherds prove they are good servants in the way that they protect in the way that they point out, in the way that they guard the flock. They make the flock alert of the dangers that are in front of them. Good shepherds will not let you hide in your sin, but they also will not allow you to be left to the wolves. The embodiment of a good servant is to be others-centered, to look out and consider others' interests as more important than their own, to be watchful, to appropriately pry into your life. It's a good thing for your pastors to know you. Not simply in a general way, but in a way that seeks to understand how you are growing in Christ and any way that you may be tempted to drift. To state it clearly, we don't want you to drift. We don't want you to fall away. Colossians picks up this or it picks up a similar warning in chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. To say it in a punctuated way, Paul is telling this young church, let nothing captivate your soul. Nothing. So it begs the question, is there anything, anything that has any kind of inkling of a hook into your life that's tempting you in any way, drawing you away in any capacity, away from the beauty and the glory of Jesus? Further, are, are you thankful when your pastors or fellow church members peer into your life? Are you grateful for this? Do you welcome their concern? If they're peering in and, and they hear something that just, uh, maybe it's not all the way alarming, but it's one of those matters that just, it begs another question. It invites another question. Do you, do you welcome that? Are you thankful for that? Are you grateful for that? Do you want that kind of care in your life? Not just from the pastors, but just from other brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's just take it a little bit deeper. Not only do you welcome these kind of questions, but do you take initiative in allowing others in? 
Do you want others in? Or you, in, in a way, being somewhat, somewhat guarded because you're concerned and you're worried about what they may find out about you? In other words, what part can you play in helping your pastors and fellow church members be a good servant of Christ to your own holiness? You see how we're flipping it here? It's not just this is what a good servant looks like and his responsibility to your soul, but it's to flip it. How can you help your own soul? How can you help your brother be a good servant of Christ by initiating and allowing him access or allowing her access? Paul is urging Timothy to exercise his God-given right as a minister of the gospel to be under God's authoritative voice. Did you, did, you, did you follow that? As a minister of the gospel, Timothy is under God's authority. That, that's critical in understanding a good, faithful servant of Christ. We are under, happily under, the authoritative voice of God. There's a beautiful simplicity in these matters as well. To to point them out means to identify what is good and what is evil, what is wrong and what is right. It is to encourage caution and wisdom even in the areas of liberty. It is to help you discern how to listen to your conscience on matters that aren't explicitly clear. It's to help you not make shipwreck of your faith and to urge you on in the good fight of faith that is in front of you. So pointing out and warning is not all that the good servant of Christ does. He also offers the only suitable alternative, and that's nourishment. Nourishment. Specifically, nourishment on words of the faith and sound doctrine. This is the good stuff. I want to underscore that this nourishment is something that is constantly and regularly happening. This means that the regular diet for the Christian are words of faith and doctrine. A good servant feeds this to his congregation. This is what we are to feed ourselves. Another word that we could use here for, uh, for, for constant nourishment is being trained. Now, you may be thinking, like, oh, of course, like the church and preaching should be, that should be focused on uh, doctrine and faith. That, that, that's quite obvious. But again, keep in mind the warnings that Paul's given. The warnings in this letter to make sure they're fighting the good fight of faith. The warnings to not make shipwreck of their faith. The warnings to not be among those who will fall away. So there is a direct link between doctrine and faith. A direct link between doctrine and faith. Is what we believe critical? Absolutely. But how we live demonstrates who we ultimately belong to. Religious people are happy to use whatever they can as a functional God to them. God meaning little g. Functional gods are simply idols that are masquerading as the true and living God. 
Words of faith and doctrine are not tertiary or secondary issues. They are foundational to Christian living. They are the essence of holy living. They must be, pre, they must be the preferred and necessary diet that we long for. It's what we want. So how do we not make shipwreck of our faith? We regularly nourish ourselves with truth. How do we fight sin? We fight it with clear revelation. And for the most part, God makes it quite clear what we are to believe and how we are to live, doctrine and faith. For all ma other matters of liberty, He has given us a conscience that is informed by the Word and the Spirit who inclines us toward obedience. We are not left to ourselves. We're not. We are not left to ourselves. So how do we understand and endure suffering? It's with a robust understanding that God's love, sovereignty, and goodness are compatible and in no way out of balance. He is in control. He is always loving toward His people. He allows trials so that our faith will be strengthened. He tests us so that we will know what is in our heart and it will in turn lead us toward Him in greater dependence. How does the church not drift in her doctrine? By teaching the full counsel of God. So this means that by default, everything in life is viewed and understood through the lens of Scripture. So pastorally and practically, what do we do with those issues that are hard to find a chapter in verse on? Words that we hear of, things like schizophrenia, emotional abuse, racism, dating, we're not going to find those words in the Bible. Does that mean that we are at a loss? Does that mean that we're just to try to figure out, just stumble around in this life and try to figure out what to do when matters like that are in front of us? We're not at a loss. It means that we seek to understand them biblically. And we can do so by seeking to answer a few questions like, how does the Bible describe God? What does the Bible say about mankind? What, what does the Bible say about how we are to treat and consider one another? What does the Bible say about the Imago Dei? Like, that's how we look at Scripture to understand and think biblically on matters that we cannot find a very clear chapter and verse to explain. It's clear that Paul tells Timothy to train the brethren with words of faith and good doctrine. Words of faith and doctrine are the companions of the Christian on this earthly pilgrimage. Who is God? Who is Christ? What does fidelity to Christ look like? This is easier understood when it comes to adults but it's less understood when it comes to students and kids. There's this an assumption, and I hate this assumption. In many ways, it's, it's a lie. This, this assumption that for young adults, that doctrine is just, it's too much. They, they, they need, they need uh, things that more pertain and relate to what they think about and do every single day. I'm not trying to minimize those important subject matters. But we do a great disservice to them when we don't 
teach clear, good doctrine. It's a great disservice to young adults when the teaching is so light and so detached from Scripture that it is no wonder that so many young people leave the church when they enter college. Why? Well, practically, church is no longer fun. The light lessons they heard are little match for the onslaught and worldly discipleship to disbelieve, disavow, and make culturally acceptable the claims of Christ. Young people, what are you going to do when it's no longer cool to call yourself a Christian and attend church? I know, I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back, but I know it's, there's no doubt in my mind, it's odd to a lot of churches that we would take our students through systematic theology right now. This is preparation. This is what Paul says to Timothy, good servants do. That's what you teach. It's what you teach. It's what you talk about. Last summer at the uh, TCT camp, the talk that I, that I gave, I held up Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, that big thousand plus uh, page book. And the reason I did that is because his dedication was either to uh, his pastor or Sunday school teacher for teaching him systematic theology when he was 12 or 13 years old. Like, who knows what Grudem thought about it at the time? Perhaps he was one of those that are in there. He's like, this, I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't understand this. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why we're not talking about other relevant things that are going on. But look how God used that. Like, look how God used that. It's, it's, it's what we should prefer. It's what we should want. It's what we should look towards. I travel a lot. And I've, I've, I've have sort of whittled my, uh, my, my food down to four or five basic things. So, so when I go grocery shopping right before leaving on an international mission trip, it takes me about 15 minutes. Because I'm going to get some beef jerky. It's going to be the peppered beef jerky. It was the Jack's peppered beef jerky until they went up crazy high in price. And so the last trip, I, I, had, to, I, had, to, I had to get the cheap stuff. It's Ritz peanut butter crackers. I don't like the Austin ones. I don't like the other ones. They, they're a little too uh, cardboard tasting kind of for me. I take ginger chews and saltine crackers. That's it. I don't, I don't think about anything else. Why? It's my comfort food. It's like if, if, if I'm over there and I'm hungry or something just ain't right, that's the kind of food that I go to. It's my comfort food. So young and older alike, let the words of faith and sound, sound doctrine, let that be our comfort food. Train yourself to love doctrine. As your doctrine goes, so goes your faith. Let that land on you. As your doctrine goes, so goes your faith. When you compromise in your doctrine, you are going to compromise in your faith. It's going to happen. You cannot love Jesus, cling to Jesus, fellowship with the triune God, and slip away. It's never going to happen. Number two, avoid and discipline. Verses 7 and 8. 
Paul shifts here and says to him, have nothing to do with worldly fables. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. It has nothing to do with what we are tempted to think that it means. So, men, you can't put that one in your hopper to try to use that one against the ladies. It doesn't, there's no ageism that's there. So what qualifies as a worldly fable? These are stories that have no historical basis nor any evidence that they are truthful. So rather than, you know, Paul doesn't give a clear example here. He just describes the nature of these stories. They're false, and they seek to deceive those who are going to listen. They're described as silly, irreverent, godless. Compared to godly teaching, they are pointless and worthless. These silly myths are to be treated like other distracting matters. Well, this is not the first time that Paul has given the uh, instruction to avoid something. Actually, several other instances where he tells them to avoid certain things. These are, what, what do you do with the foolish and ignorant controversies? He'll, he's going to say later on in his second letter to Timothy, avoid them because they are going to produce quarrels. In another letter to Titus, he says, what do you do with a divisive person? You reject him after a first or second admonition. Two chapters later in 1 Timothy, what do you do with pointless and empty talk? You turn away from it. What about pointless chatter? You avoid for it will progress to greater ungodliness. So for foolish, ignorant controversies, empty talk, divisive people that you've warned once and twice, what do you do with them? How do you handle them? You avoid and you reject them. And yet, I love this quick pivot from Paul. It's almost like it's an about face. He tells Timothy to avoid this godless nonsense and to train himself for godliness. He is reminding Timothy that there is no such thing as passivity. You are active. Your hearts are always active before the Lord. You are always in your life gravitating toward something. And what we are gravitating toward is either going to be godless or godliness. There's no gray area. We're either moving in a godless direction or we are moving toward godliness. So rooted students, I want you to listen. Put, put down, listen up for a second. I want to encourage you to determine right now to be a godly person. Not to make this determination tomorrow, but I want to urge you with all help from the Lord to make it your ambition right now to not live a life with a question mark over you. Determine that you're going to be godly. I say that in part because I think those who knew me as a high school student probably were confused in a lot of ways. 
He says this, but then this is what I witnessed from his actions at times. And honestly, I confused myself. And so when I stepped foot on the campus of Union University, this isn't a boastful pride of life, but I made it out of the Lord. I'm not going to live as a question mark here. I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to, with your help, live a godly life before you. But that doesn't just happen. Let's look a little bit more closely at this training. He says, discipline yourself for godliness. He said, there, there is a benefit for bodily training. So there is some benefit, and, and, and I'm not going to labor this point very long. I'm not going to spend much more time in it than the Scripture itself treats it. But there is profit to physical, bodily training. Let me say it in this way. We, we need to take care of the bodies that God has given us. We need to steward this responsibility well. Not just so that we can be you know, beach ready, but because we are a temple of the living God. And it can, it can contribute even to our spiritual state when we don't take care of our bodies. But of greater significance here is the training for godliness. Why? It holds promise for today and all eternity. Training for godliness holds promise for today and all eternity. What are the benefits of today? The benefits of today is the, that godliness is the best life. That is the good life. There's no greater joy than the joy of Jesus. There's no better combatant against sin than the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no greater embrace of our weakness than to boast of His might. There is no other rest for the weary, no other hope for the downcast, no other rock, no other refuge, no other stronghold, no better or more present help in trouble. There's nothing greater, nothing better, no, no, no better promise than to have all that we need right now for life and godliness. That's 2 Peter 1. Everything that you need for this life and to be a godly person is available to you. You have access to that through the finished work of Christ. What about the benefits for eternal life? Acts says that through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God. James 1.12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. That's what awaits as we endure. That's what awaits as we limp along in this Christian life. That's what awaits as we fight and fight and fight and fight and fight against sin. That's the promise. That's the anchor behind the veil. Why do we need this training? Man. Because we need nourishment. We need strength from the Lord. We need help every moment, every single day. I shared with you earlier about the cross-country race. 
What I didn't share with you is that I have a great disdain for long distance running. So when my baseball days are over, I made a commitment not to run long distance ever again. And uh, I held true to that for a lot of years until, um, uh, until I decided to run a half marathon. So I wanted to do that just, just for the kind of the, the discipline and the devotion. I knew, I knew like, you know, sort of contrary to that, the advice that my dad gave me, um, I knew that I couldn't wake up the next day and go out and run 13 miles that I needed to, I needed to train for that. So that's, that's, what I, that's what I did. I learned my lesson, I paced myself. So, uh, so I did learn that lesson from the, from the, from the high school. But after, uh, after I ran the race, um, I took a couple of weeks off. And so after taking a couple of weeks off, uh, I decided to go out for a run. And I thought, I'm just gonna do a simple three miles. I, I, I struggled in that three miles. I was shocked, I was surprised. I felt good, felt strong. I, I, I felt like I could go out and run 13 miles again. So why? after having spent all of that time building up to be able to run the 13, why after a couple of weeks of not running, was it hard and painful to crank out three miles? Because I stopped training. I stopped the discipline. And I, I use this example with, with, with Christians who are starting to drift away. And what's sad and concerning is because you can talk to them and, and maybe at face value, they're going to project, I'm doing okay. Like, I still believe there's a Jesus. I still believe there's a heaven. I know that church is important. I know that you should read the Bible and all of these things. But what they don't realize, what they aren't seeing is that by this lack, uh, this lackadaisical approach to training for godliness, really they're experiencing spiritual atrophy. They're shrinking and shriveling up. So we don't, as Christians, like bodily training, is, it's good. Take a day off. Take two days off. Listen to your body. But when it comes to godliness... There's never a day off for that. There's not a moment off for that. Hold every thought captive to Christ. How do we know when we're drifting? Any moment that you think that it's okay to be disobedient with any of the commands of the Lord. That's when your conscience, which is probably alarming off in you. It's helping you to say, this is not good. Don't continue. And that's a good time to get somebody in to pray for you. Lastly, labor, strive, and hope. Verses 9 and 10. This is the third instance. Uh, this verse here, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. It's the third time, third use of this, where Paul said this is a trustworthy statement. In this instance, the trustworthy statement that deserves our full acceptance is the present and eternal value of godliness. This is not a matter that is up for debate. 
In our day, much emphasis is placed on the individual self. You, you can hear it come out in these expressions. I'm, I'm just going to do me. You just got to focus on yourself and do you. It's about what you want. It's about what you think is best. It's about how you want to live your life. These are the proverbs of the world. And they are the very lies that Christ's death is meant to deliver you from. And the proverbs of the world will send you straight to hell. So let it be settled in your heart that godliness is God's plan A for your life. Believe in your heart now that you are not your own, but that you have been bought with a price, the very costly blood and life of Christ, that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, that you did not make yourself, but according to Psalm 100, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So now that that's settled, we labor and strive. Labor. We work toward this end. This can also mean weary. Anyone has ever labored toward a goal, whether it's athletically or a matter uh, that required long devotion to educate and prepare for something, you can understand and appreciate the rigors of being weary. It's hard work. You work because you believe it's worth it. So weary yourself in the discipline and training of godliness. Paul is telling Timothy this because the Christian life is hard. We understand what it means to be weighed down with sin. We know what it is to be weary and resisting temptation, to be burdened with a massively heavy weight and suffering. You know what I'm talking about. Sin, suffering. It's like if you've been in a movie theater right before the movie starts as a way of testing the speakers you hear that voice that comes out and says, you hear it say, all around you. It's like all of the speakers who are going off in some, some, some sort of systematic way to let you know that all around you is this surround system, surround sound system. And this is what it's like for the Christian, as, for the, for the Christian in their lived experience. Sin and suffering is all around you. Weary yourself with Christ. Be distracted with Christ. Strive for this. Godliness is a matter that you fight for. This is what it means to strive. A consequence of the fall is that life is going to be difficult. And as we listen to what we are to do, let it encourage you that there are corporate expectations for what we are to do. We labor and strive together. We work together. We fight together. As a church, we commit to each other's sanctification. We help each other train well. When it comes to sin, we tell each other, we're not going to let you go down this hellhole of sin. And when suffering is present, we encourage the faint-hearted to help them know you do not have to suffer in isolation. We're with you. You labor, you strive, you work, you fight, and we do it together. So, so far, I spent the entire time telling us what to do but I've not yet said how to do it. And this is the good part. Because I surmise that everyone in this room likely falls into one of these three potential categories. Category number one, you listen to a sermon like this and you got a little fire in you. And you're ready. You're ready to prove yourself. And this is probably pride. Category two, you're tracking along with the instructions here. They make sense to you. You feel some of the fire in category one, but it's more like a smoldering wick of a candle. 
You understand the battle. You're aware of your temptations. You feel like you've been on the front lines of the battle for your godliness on a war that not only doesn't end, but only seems to intensify. You feel the sway. You even admit the sin's looking a little bit better. And your grip on the fight of faith seems to be loosening just a little bit. Or perhaps you're category three, and you cannot wait for me to be done. You're just uninterested in accepting the truth that godliness is the only life that matters now and for eternity. So to the first group, the prideful ones, humble yourself. Pride's never pleasing to the Lord. Humility is always welcome. God has grace for the humble. To the third group that's disinterested, can I encourage you to be honest with yourself for a moment? You really are empty. You're confused. You tell yourself you're happy. You even surround yourself with people who think like you in hopes that maybe they can convince you that you're happy. But what's the end game here? It cannot logically be true that you have autonomy over your soul to determine that the pleasure of yourself is paramount. What will you do when someone else's self-designated right contradicts your own? If you do you is the anthem of the day, then what right do you have to elevate yourself over another? I love you enough to tell you that yourself is going to deceive you. It already has. Whatever peace you think you have, whatever happiness it is that you're experiencing, is only a bitter mistress to the destruction that waits you if you do not turn to Christ in faith. And I would not be a good servant of Christ if I did not give a clear warning. This comes with love, but it comes clearly. You must turn to Christ. To the second group, which likely comprises most people here, verse 10 holds it out for us. Fix your hope on the living God who is your Savior. If the above are true of a good servant, how do we do them as good servants of Christ? No doubt, all of us in the room, when taking a humble, genuine evaluation, we can quickly locate weaknesses, deficiencies, areas of neglect, matters we ignore or have become indifferent to. Maybe our conscience is dulled, numbed us in areas where we need to take a closer, harder, honest look. But back to the question, how? We look to Christ and we look to him in the two ways that Paul draws Timothy's attention. Christ is the living God. He's true. He's eternal. He is the living God. Christ is the Savior of the world. He's the one who gave his life. He's our only deliverance. He's the only deliverer. He is the only Redeemer. Only He can save you from yourself. Only He can give grace to humble ourselves. Only He can be our motive for life and godliness. So being a good servant of Christ means that you're not passive in your pursuit of Christ, nor are you passive to do what is required of good servants. When Paul was given his word to the Colossians, 
One of the ways he ended it, he said, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is, this is how we weary ourselves with Christ. Colossians says, or Paul says in Colossians, that it's the energy and power of Christ that he works within us. Paul says you fix your hope on the living God who is your Savior. So, the past two weeks put two sobering realities in front of us. Because sin and suffering are going to tempt us to drift and eventually to turn away, we must all be all the more diligent to fix our hope on Christ who alone is our Savior.